Hebrews 11, 11, and 12. By faith, Sarah. 11, 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to you, we come wanting to know what your word says. We know this is your word. And we pray that you will sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. May we consider righteous all your precepts concerning everything and hate every false way. Grant to us, Lord, the proper esteem that we should have for this holy, righteous, pure, abiding, eternal word of God, because we know, Lord, it reveals who you are and it reveals our salvation and our need of it and how we can grow in grace and knowledge to the glory of God the Father. Grant this to us as we study this portion of your word. And we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We've come to a part here in Hebrews 11 that deals with the matriarch of the faith, Sarah. She was the wife of Abraham. Abraham had a wife named Sarah. After discussing and after explaining the faith of Abraham in verses 8 to 10, he will return to that in part in verse 12 and then pick up after that in the subsequent passage. Abraham and now here Sarah, they are the focus because they are both the patriarch and the matriarch of all of those who have right faith, true faith in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Christ. This reminds us of the fact that the Bible gives us the Old Testament and even the New Testament for the purpose of us building up faith and looking at those who preceded us as those who experienced some of the same things we experienced, yet they overcame and they overcame with faith. They are written and they are recorded for our encouragement. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's the reason it's here, that we might have hope, we might persevere, we might have encouragement. That's why when we read of Abraham or Sarah or anyone else, those who were of the faith, we are taught to emulate, to practice, to repeat what they did and have faith just as they had. Remember that the experiences of life, the basic and common experiences of life, are true, not just in our generation among all people, no matter what nation, no matter what language, male or female. They're common experiences, not only today, but throughout history. Whatever has happened and whatever will happen in the future, these are common experiences. Therefore, that, that's what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, that these are common to man, common to man in every generation. So when we come now to look at Sarah, let's observe her godliness, her faith, and seek to practice the same. Verse 11 says, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. The apostle tells us that she had this true faith also. She had it also. He says, even Sarah herself. It's not as though it was just the men or just the people that he mentioned previous to this 
that is Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, but even Sarah. And also it's even Sarah because it wasn't as though Abraham was a loner in his household, but he had a wife who was a woman of faith and a woman of, of obedience. She also desired to please the Lord. She also was one who understood, like Abraham and others, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. She had that kind of faith. We know that this was a gifted faith, a granted faith, a faith that was a gift of God's grace, just as it was to Abraham, so it was to Sarah. In this case, Abraham and Sarah, they both were believers and they both were obedient. Even she did. Which reminds us and shows us that the gospel is not just for men, but it's also for women. And we should also say the reciprocal or the opposite, that it's not just for women, but it's also for men. The Bible teaches us this by this example here of Abraham and Sarah, right at the very beginning of the two who become the model of the faith and the patriarch and the matriarch of the true faith. It teaches us that because we have a propensity either to slant it one way or the other way, either toward the men or toward the women in terms of faith. And we should not do that. Those who have true faith in Christ should understand that there is a unity, there is one mind, there is one faith, and a need for all of us, whether men or women, to obey Christ. That's the, what the Bible teaches us. And this is a needed correction in our day. Because in our day, it so happens that feminism, or evangelical feminism, even in the church as it's called, feminism seeks to undermine this very truth. It seeks to undermine this very truth. In the name of equality, most often feminists seek to undermine the authority of the man and seek to put the, the authority of the woman on top of the man and subjugate the man. That's often what happens in feminism. And yet the Bible is against that. It's against it because both men and women are created in the image of God. Both men and women have a soul or a spirit that lives on eternally. Both men and women can hear and understand and believe the same gospel. So in terms of eternal life, in terms of holiness, faith, and obedience in all things, both men and women are expected to know what the Bible says and both to obey whatever the Bible says in relation to their own person. Both of them are supposed to do so. Now, we also know, and we will explain um, in a moment, that Sarah also understood her station under Abraham. Notice right here, firstly, it says that even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. By faith, she received ability to conceive. When did she give birth to Isaac? When she was 90 years old. And when did Abraham um, give birth to Isaac? When he was 100 years old. He was 100 and she was 90. This passage is clear by saying that she received ability to conceive by faith. Received ability to conceive by faith. And verse 12 says that he was as good as dead. 
He was as good as dead. That means in terms of his reproductive, procreative abilities, he did not have any power. Romans 4 repeats these truths. Romans 4, in in reference to both of them. Romans 4, verse 18 says, In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he was dead and she was dead in terms of reproductive ability. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. The scripture is quite clear, both in Genesis chapters 17 and 18, where we read of these incidents, but also here in Romans 4 and Hebrews 11, that both of them, Abraham and Sarah, were unable to produce children at that point in life. And throughout life, even Sarah was barren until the age of 90. Now, if this happened, how did it happen? Well, there is the divine part of it, and then there is the human part of it. The divine part of it is that God granted faith to Abraham and to Sarah. They both believed because God granted faith. God also granted the miracle of conception. The miracle of conception, God granted it to both of them because both of them were beyond the age of reproduction. Both of them were. So God granted faith and he also granted this miracle of reproduction. But also, what's the human part? The human part was that Abraham and Sarah had to act on faith. They both needed to act on faith. And when they had to act on faith, they had to be together. They had to come together, which it, presumably they were not doing it because both were dead and they were unable at that age to even try. They were both unable to even try. They had no desire, so they did not come together. They stopped practicing that as husband and wife. So both of them had to actually act in coming together and believe in the promise of God. They had to actually do that, which means that Abraham had to have faith that when he did, that God's word would be fulfilled. And when Sarah heard that word, she had to believe that God's word would be fulfilled. They both had to act in obedience. And also, also, I implied earlier that Sarah understood her station or her position. She could have easily said no. She could have easily said, no, we're not going to do that. She could have easily resisted and refused Abraham. If Abraham was willing and she was unwilling, she could have easily done so. But she did not. She recognized her need to submit not only to the word of God, which is most important, but also to submit to the word of her husband or the will of her husband or, or the desire of her husband. She had to realize her need to submit under her husband's authority. Which brings us to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
First Peter chapter 3. Please turn with me to verse 1. First Peter 3, 1. After explaining how we should relate to one another in society and that Jesus suffered and he suffered as an example for us in the previous chapter, he explains this. In 1 Peter 3, 1, he now addresses both the, the wives and then the husbands. And our focus for our message now is on the wife. In verse 1, it says, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In verse 1, he expects the wives to be submissive. And even if they have a husband who is disobedient to the word. In the case of Abraham, she had a husband obedient to the word. But even when there is a husband who is disobedient, the wife, the believing wife, the professing believer, she is supposed to say, yes, I will do whatever is necessary and be obedient even when my husband is disobedient to the word. I will do the will of God even if my husband is not. And then it, he, it says in verse one, without a word that they may be one, disobedient husbands may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. He's implying it won't help to nag your unbelieving or disobedient husband. Don't nag the, the husband, but may your godliness, verse two, as they, disobedient husbands, observe your chaste and respectful behavior chaste, clear, uh, clean, pure, and respectful behavior. Respectful towards him, even though he disobeys the word. Verse three, further, and let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. He gives a few examples of the way in which women beautify themselves, which is not wrong in and of its uh, of the, itself or themselves, these practices, is not bad or evil to do that. But when the focus is on that and you expect that your husband will like you or listen to you or give you your, your wishes because of beauty and beauty alone, then that's wrong. That's the wrong approach. It shouldn't be that. It should be your godly behavior. Godly behavior. Verse 4, he, which he says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The hidden person of the heart, that which you are on the inside. Are you a woman of faith? Are you genuine in your faith? And that quality will show in a gentle and quiet spirit, which is opposite of the nagging spirit, the bitter spirit of verse one, the gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. This is what God desires for us to have, for the women to have, and even the men, but the focus here is on the women. Then he gives examples, verses five and six. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. In former times, 
Here too, the apostle teaches us that whatever was written in former times, in earlier times, in the Old Testament, these holy women, such as Sarah, such as Rebecca, such as Rachel, and all the others that could be named, all the others, they would adorn themselves, that is, they would clothe themselves with godliness with, and not focus on the physical external beauty. They would focus on their godliness. That's how they did so. And they did this hoping in God. You see, in verse 6 he says, without being frightened by any fear. They weren't frightened by any fear. Fear, well, well, well if I do this, then what's going to happen? What will my husband do? What will he do against me? What will others do against me? What will my fr friends say uh, uh, against me if I do what the Bible says? It's here, it says, don't be frightened with any fear. Don't let any kind of fear, any kind of intimidation disturb you, make you anxious, make you disobedient, make you unfaithful, make you lack faith, make you not trust, give you no hope. No, don't do that. Hope in God. Hope in what God says. Hope in what he says in his word. Verse six, and the specific example. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Sarah is the specific example. And here he says she, she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Which brings us back to the previous statement. That is, they both had to agree to come together as husband and wife, even though they were 90 and 100 years old. They both had to agree to that. She obeyed Abraham in that. She realized what God's word said. She realized what her husband wanted to do, and she wanted to do the same thing. So in that way, she obeyed. She submitted, or she was submissive, verse 1 says. In this way, she followed Abraham. And not only is there the reality that Isaac was from that union, not only that, but also even before that happened, there's indication that she was a submissive and obedient wife because it says she called him Lord. Now, Lord in English is with the small l, which means uh, master or head or the, the one who calls the shots, basically. That's what she called him. And she understood her place, her position. Though they were equal in terms of their humanity, though they were equal in terms of their redemption and salvation, eternal life, yet there was this um, uh, rank or there was this position that she recognized that she must obey the one who has a higher rank than she does. She must obey her husband when her husband wants to do godliness. When her husband wants to follow the Lord, that's the key. The woman is not supposed to sin if the husband wants her to sin. Just like children are not supposed to sin if their parents want them to sin. Just like we're not supposed to sin if the government wants us to sin and transgress the laws of God. It doesn't work that way. We obey the government. We obey our parents. We obey, uh, wives obey their husbands to the extent that they are seeking to please God or do the things of God, the will of God, according to the word of God. Children, be obedient to your parents in the Lord, for this is right, says Ephesians 6, 1. In the Lord, obey them in the Lord. 
And that's what Sarah understood. She analyzed the situation. She observed what was happening. And she had faith to obey him. And when she called him Lord, that was an indication that she knew eventually they needed to come together because they believed the word of God. And she did not have any fear. She did not care what her husband would say to her. She did not care what her friends would say to her. And they had a big clan of people. There there was a lot of people that were under Abraham and Sarah. She didn't care what they would say. And she did not even care what the Canaanites, all the wicked uh, people of the world all around them, all the nations, what they would say. She didn't care. She wasn't frightened by any fear because she wanted to do the will of God. Can you imagine also another aspect of, or a specific aspect of this fear would be if it did not happen, what would people say? If they did not have Isaac, what would people say? But also, if they did have Isaac, wouldn't people laugh? Wouldn't people ridicule them? A 90-year-old woman, a 100-year-old man, they're tired, they're unable, they, they don't have the abilities, they don't have the energy as a 20 or 30-year-old would have to raise their children, and yet they're doing it. And look at the age difference, look at the way Abraham looks, and look at the way Isaac looks. A one year, he's got a one-year-old baby, and look, he's 101 years old. The big difference there, people would laugh about that, they'd ridicule that, they'd say, you're crazy, you don't know what you're doing. But Abraham and Sarah, Sarah here, he says, she was not frightened by any fear because she had faith in God. She put her hope in God. Moreover, let's go back to Hebrews 11, 11. Hebrews 11, 11. The last part of the verse says that she behaved this way since she considered him faithful who had promised. Since She considered him faithful who had promised. That was the basis. Because God is faithful, she had faith in him. Because God is faithful, she obeyed according to her faith. He was faithful. Whatever he says, he will do. God is not capricious. God is not arbitrary. God is not fickle. He does not act on a whim. He's not like the deities of the world. If, in truth, if you study pagan literature, if you study polytheism, whether ancient polytheism or modern polytheism, they literally believe their gods are fickle. They literally believe their gods are arbitrary. They act on a whim. They don't know what's happening. They have to get updates from their advisors and the petty deities and all the and angels and all that, that they actually believe that their gods are not faithful. But that's not what the true faith says. That's not what the Bible says. To believe in God means to believe that He is faithful. He is so mighty, so powerful as the creator of the world that whatever He says since that time is reliable if we believe He created the world. That He is able to produce something out of nothing. Once we believe that, as He started in Hebrews 11.3 to tell us. He told us, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. 
This is the way in which he considered him faithful. He produced the miracle when he created the world, so why can he, he not, this same God, produce something out of nothing from the womb? He can. They put their faith in a faithful God. God is faithful. He's not only faithful to carry out his word in, in reference to events of this world, but she believed, as she put her hope in God, in the world to come. We know that they put their faith in the world to come based on verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles, exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the way she considered God faithful. He said it in his word. Her confidence was in that. And God is a God of promises. Which two? Remember, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Whether in this world or the world to come, her confidence, her hope was in God, even though she did not see those things yet. Even though she did not experience those things yet, she put her faith in God because God is faithful. She understood the true nature and the true character of God. And what did this promise contain? Verse 12. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. This is a quote from Genesis 15, 5 and 22, 17, which makes statements like this, that Abraham's descendants would be like the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. When Abraham died, there was Isaac, and Abraham died at the age of 175. When Abraham died at the age of 175, Isaac was 75 years old. And when Isaac was 75 years old, Jacob and Esau, they were, they were 15 years old, because Isaac had Jacob and Esau when he was 60. So, Jacob and Esau, his, Abraham's grandsons were 15, Isaac was 75, and, Jake, and Abraham was 175 when he died. Abraham, in the physical sense, he did not see his descendants like the stars in the sand of the seashore. You can't count them, right? You cannot count the stars, you cannot count the, the sand of the seashore. You can't count them. So, yet Abraham and Sarah had faith that one day their descendants would be like that. By the time we get to the book of Exodus, remember the Pharaoh of Egypt, Exodus chapter 1, he's afraid of the people because they are so numerous, so mighty in power, and more powerful, more mighty, more numerous than the Egyptians. He was so afraid of them. And later too, in their history, they were very populous. So, that came that reality which they did not see physically at the time. They saw it spiritually.
because they believed in the word of God, that those physical descendants would be innumerable. The Bible, however, does not only mean it in the physical way. It also means it in the spiritual way. It means it in the spiritual way, that Abraham's descendants would not be, would not be merely physical, that is, from Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob, not just that way, which had its place. It had its place because they were the repository. They were the recipients of the word of God and all of the covenants and the sacrifices and the feasts and everything else. They were the recipients of that. And they were the recipients of the physical birth of Christ. They all experienced that. They had those physical benefits. However, a second way the Bible means that God would have or Abraham would have descendants as numerable as the stars and the sand is in the, phys- uh, is in the spiritual way. How do we know this? Notice in Galatians chapter 3. Please turn to Galatians chapter 3 to see this truth. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 6. Galatians 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And who are those? Among the nations, all the nations shall be blessed in you. Now, if we're talking about those who have faith, and they're not just Jews, not just the Hebrew people, not just the nation of Israel from the 12 tribes, then we're now talking about people from among the nations, and they will be blessed in in, uh, Abraham. And here it says, those who are of faith, they will be blessed. Now, the number of them, how do we know the number of them? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, tells us about this number among the nations. Revelation 7, 9. All, after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Those are saved people. And the saved people are called a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, tribes, peoples, tongues. They have white robes. This is an innumerable group, just as God had promised. When he says, therefore, in Hebrews eleven twelve as innumerable as the stars and sand, he's talking about salvation being for those who have faith like Abraham and Sarah among all peoples of the world. This is also a very important doctrine because these days we do come across many people, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity, who seek to create 
divisions and contentions and even physical violence between one group of people and another group of people. And they say, some of them will say, only black people will go to heaven and everyone else, literally everyone else, will ne never get to heaven. And then there's others who will say only white people will get to heaven. And then there are others who will say only yellow people will get to heaven or only br uh, brown people or only red people will get to heaven. Literally, this actually happens. There are people who create these divisions falsely, contentiously, and even violently, one group against another. They completely miss the boat. And especially those who are reading the Bible. There is absolutely no way to read our Bible and say that the true spiritual descendants of those people who will, uh, of Abraham who will go to heaven are of one skin color. That's absurd, but it's also dangerous and devilish to believe that and to create contention between one group and another, and especially to do so in a violent way. No, this is wrong. It's satanic, it's wrong, it's devilish, and it leads to hell. Because the person who teaches that, who believes that, is one who thinks, or thinks wrongly about the gospel, because that's not what the Bible means. It doesn't mean it anywhere at all. Nowhere at all. And even they say it in such an absurd way that they say, all Jews go to hell. All Jews go to hell. That's another aspect of this absurdity. That's ridiculous. That can't be the case. Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. The writers of the New Testament, they were Jews. Many of the early disciples in the first century were Jews. They were not black. They were not brown or red or yellow or anything. They were Jews whatever you want to call that color of skin. They were Jews. So let's believe the same. And then finally, what is the most important part of this promise to Abraham and Sarah? When it says that their descendants, physical and spiritual, will be innumerable, on what basis? Or who is the cause? What is the reason that these people will exist in the spiritual union, in the spiritual bond, the spiritual sons of Abraham. How will that come about? The answer to that is in Galatians chapter 3. Turn again to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. 3, 16. Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What does this mean? This means, according to Galatians 3.16, that when God made the promise to Abraham and to his seed, he meant that the way that this will happen, that he will have innumerable spiritual descendants, is if those people, whether Jews or Gentiles, from among the Hebrew people or the nations of the world, the reason they will all be one people is Christ. That's the reason why they will be one. And Christ, he is the physical descendant of Abraham. He's also the spiritual cause of this group of people in Abraham's descendants. And because of his death on the cross and because of his resurrection, all Christ, the promise was that Christ would have innumerable people 
who would follow in his train or who would benefit from his death and resurrection. It's Christ. That's why Revelation 7, 10 says, they shout out salvation to our God and to the Lamb. And to the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away our sin to bring us into one group, to be one under one head, Christ our Lord. When the promises of God are spoken, they can only make sense throughout the Old Testament if the people of the Old Testament, the saints of the Old Testament, are putting their faith in Christ. And they only make sense in the New Testament and in every age, in every period, if we put our faith in Christ. Christ is the basis. He is the cause. He's the efficient cause. Because of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, he is the reason that we all exist as a spiritual body. That's why we are called the body of Christ. If we do not have the head of the body who is Christ, there is no body. That body exists because of the head. Let's believe the same. Let's believe in this gospel. Let's repent of our sins. Let's believe like this. Let's believe like Sarah. Be godly like her. Let's do what the will of God is. Whenever we hear the word of God, may we have faith. May we, whenever we hear the word of God, let's obey with swiftness. Let's do whatever he says. And may, may we put our faith in the promises of God. The most important promise is Jesus Christ for our salvation. Let's turn away from sin and let's put our faith, our hope, our confidence all in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.